This podcast is edited and partly recorded on Wurundjeri land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Hello everyone, welcome to Books Without Borders, the podcast where two people in different hemispheres come together to talk about our favourite thing, books. I'm Emma. And I'm Nina. And Nina's actually in her own home for once. I am. Shocker. I am. It's a really crazy feeling. And I'll tell you, it's not even that comfortable because I'm surrounded by suitcases and all sorts of unpacked things. But I'm with my cat, so that helps. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. I was welcomed via video call by Tiger on the camera, so that was a nice (laughs) surprise this morning. She's now providing emotional support from afar. Nice, nice. For a second, I thought you said that she's meow providing emotional support from afar, and um, I was like, well, I mean, she's welcomed to do that also (laughs) i tell really good puns but i wouldn't go that far yeah i wouldn't call that a good pun so that's um, (laughs) that's completely fair anyway uh, (laughs) how has your week been my week has been good i was in maine as you know and it was just a lovely break from Mm -hmm. the city i swam i relaxed on the beach i read i worked on some crafting projects Mm -hmm. i really did not that much and also felt like i did a lot at the same time Mm -hmm. because i feel like when you're in such a slow environment and doing anything at all that can feel like a busy week. Totally, yeah. So it it was very nice. And my friend was up there with us. So we worked on a puzzle. Mm. That was great. Yeah, it was just like a lovely, lovely time. I love going up to Maine and I can't wait to go back next year. I hope we like really get back into the tradition because I don't know if I mentioned like we used to go up every year and then we stopped Mm. for a couple years because of COVID and we just came back up for the first time in like four mm. or so years maybe five years actually so yeah that was exciting that's awesome that sounds so lovely this sounds like the best time and I love doing puzzles with other people so that sounds really fun mm. I'm very jealous I know I'm like considering starting a puzzle club with her because puzzles are so much fun but they're like 20 30 bucks and mm. you only do it once really and I want to like start like trading puzzles but I also mm. want I'm kind of a little bit crazy in this way but I would love to start like competitively puzzling. <laughs> I love speed puzzling. And speed puzzling. I will send you pictures of this because okay. it's really funny. But when we're doing the puzzle, I organize the pizzas not only by color, but also by shape. You know, like how many prongs and how many holes they have. Mm. And so mm-hmm. I can go pretty quick like that. And I don't I don't look at the picture. It's like for me, I think that's cheating, even though oh. I know it's a puzzle and there's no such thing as cheating. But I have like big puzzle rules and I would love to do it in a more formal setting. Interesting. By the way, (laughs) something I found out when I got really into puzzles, but then my body stopped me from being able to do them as much physically. There's a really good puzzle app on the app Mm. store that I'll link you to and I'll link in the show notes as well. It has a bunch of free puzzles. There's a few puzzle apps out there, but a lot of them require you to buy a bunch of packs. But this one has a lot of free puzzles. It has like daily puzzles, puzzle of the day kind of things, which I always like. And it also has like various like challenges you can complete like one of the challenges is actually can you complete this without looking at the reference picture and like with different numbers of pieces and it's a very well designed app in terms of the mechanics of it I can highly recommend that one I can't remember what it's called off the top of my head and I can't bring up my phone right now because it'll make my microphone go berserk but I will definitely send that to you and link it in the show notes for anyone else who's interested because it's a very accessible and free way to do 
through a bunch of puzzles. I use it all the time when I'm listening to audiobooks. Very exciting. Yeah. So free plug for that. I definitely app. need to check that out. <laughs> yeah. They do also have paid packs, but there are so many free ones and they put out more free ones every week, basically. So there's like a never ending supply of free puzzles on there, basically, unless you do them constantly. I honestly can't imagine running out of free ones, <laughs> if, especially if you're doing them all as I do on like the 420 piece version. It sounds dangerous for me. <laughs> I might spend all my time on there. <laughs> I mean, like, because I get like tunnel vision for it, you know. But I mean, if you're, it's it's really useful to have while you're like listening to audiobooks or podcasts or whatever, because you know, if it's if you're using it instead of like a craft project or whatever that you might have been doing otherwise, then yeah, maybe that's dangerous. But for me, <laughs> as someone who would otherwise just be playing a different type of phone game, like it's a different type of phone game, and I like and I enjoy it. So it's an alternative to real life puzzles, and it's free, and it doesn't hurt my body because I can do it in bed. So love that. Yeah, love that puzzle plug. <laughs> yep. Sponsor us puzzles, please. <laughs> Just like the general concept of puzzles, please sponsor us. <laughs> yep. That being said, I do enjoy a physical puzzle. The tactile sensation is is much more satisfying yes. when you when I can actually get around to doing them. On the few days when my back is being less irritating, I do very much enjoy them. There's nothing quite like the tap, the mm. involuntary mm-hmm. tap. After you get a piece in, you have to like double tap it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Just that. to double check it fits, yep. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, oh yeah. And just like to congratulate yourself a little bit. I don't know. It's like, ah, I, it. I don't yeah. even think about it. I do it every time I put a puzzle piece in. I don't in. think I do a double anyway. tap, but definitely like a little, just a little like, ah, yes, that's it. <laughs> like I'll put a piece in, right? And then I'll just like, I don't know. That's just what I do. I, I just nice. can't help it. Nice. Um, anyway. Anyway, our weeks, that's what we were talking about. Right, right. So yes, I'm glad you had such a lovely relaxing time. That sounds really nice. How about you? How was your week? It was mixed, but mostly good. It was my housemate's birthday this weekend, so we spent the entire Aww. weekend eating. Just love it. An That's the perfect way to celebrate. Yeah, most of my I, I I bought him an early birthday present earlier this month with a video game, but then most of the rest of my birthday present to him was just buying an obscene amount of takeaway all weekend. And for the last like three days, we've been stuffing ourselves. So very much an enjoyable, relaxing time. And he had a couple of friends over on Sunday and yeah so it's been good it's been a good relaxing time I did manage to in the middle of that wake up on Sunday morning having the worst hip pain in my life uh, I'd managed to get my hip out of joint not a full dislocation but the worst subluxing I've ever had in my life for my hip I woke up like not being able to weight bear on my hip at all literally I managed to sublux my hip in my sleep that's the state oh, my body my is in right now. So fortunately I had a physio appointment Monday morning, yesterday morning, and she was able to help me out a, l- a bit there. And she's taped up my hips. I've got some tape on my lower back right now. So that kind of put a little bit of a damper on my <laughs> on my weekend. And I'm physically somewhat exhausted from that experience. Incredibly painful. But fortunately, at least I know what my condition is. So it wasn't like, what the hell is happening to me? It was like, oh no, this is a new level. <laughs> you know, it was just kind of a, ah, shucks. oof oof i'm so sorry that sounds awful yeah not great but hey at least i know what i'm dealing with which yeah no absolutely and you had your appointment all set up yep it was that's the best you can do relatively good timing and i had you know my my dad was nice enough to drive me there (laughs) so that i didn't have to risk driving with a leg that was kind of only partly working (laughs) yeah not a good idea not a good idea at all Uh, and i was (laughs) 
I'm extra glad because even after the physio appointment, I was so exhausted just from pain is exhausting. This is something that I don't think people who don't experience chronic pain or high levels of pain don't un- like. I don't know if people understand this. Pain in and of itself is exhausting. Your body is trying so hard to keep the rest of you functioning if you've got one area of you that's like not working properly that all your body's energy goes to keeping you together and to keeping you functioning and also to keeping your mental health like keeping yourself sane is also exhausting so that on top of my usual fatigue I ended up like in tears for a brief moment in my physio appointment not from pain just from sheer exhaustion right (laughs) yeah right just like a teeny tiny cry she gave me like an instruction on how to roll over from my side to my front and my brain literally could not process the words she was saying to me and I just had a little bit of a tiny frustration cry and she was like it's fine really I guess no definitely (laughs) that that has also been a big learning curve for me when I'm taking care of my aunt Mm. who had a stroke and so a lot of things cause her to strain Mm. you know in her mind and in her body and stuff and so that strain is so frustrating oh yeah it's like she has the physical capability to do it and she has like I think a lot of people like look at her and think like oh you're walking like you're fine Mm. or like you know like you can do whatever any other person can do but we take so much for granted the way that our brain works so hard to connect our body and our thoughts and our choices and do that while also doing 10 other different things and sometimes when I'm trying to like you know, sympathize in that moment with understanding like why she is struggling so much with that thing. I think of how difficult it is to literally do anything like when you're sick, you mm-hmm. know, when you're sick and you just have like fatigue totally. and like aches and sores. Yeah, like, that's my life like you're all saying, the time. Like doing a puzzle. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. That's why I, can't work. I mean, when you're saying, <laughs> when you're saying like the strain of doing a puzzle at first, my first thought was like doing a puzzle is like doing nothing. Mm-mm. But then like 10 seconds later, I was thinking, oh no, imagine doing a puzzle when you're sick mm. and like having to hold your body up mm-hmm. and to bend your back Bending over, back you know, over, and, and to and look at the again. pieces yep. and think about where the pieces go. Mm-hmm. Like it's a big brain exercise, even though it's like, seems like such a simple thing. Mm-hmm. And she gets a lot of comments like that, even like from family who mean well that like, oh, see, like, you know, you remembered this thing. Therefore, your memory can't be that bad. Mm -hmm. Or like, you got a hand, so therefore you can use it. Mm -hmm. Like, I think she was telling a story today about how my uncle, her brother, had this puppy that he just got and he was all stressed out and he like asked her to like hold the leash and her stroke was on the right side of her brain Mm -hmm. and she's left dominant. So that affects her left hand. And she was like, if you want me to hold this leash, I cannot guarantee you that it'll stay in my hand. Like, he just forgot the fact that like just because she has a hand doesn't mean it works the way anyone else would you know like anyway it's important to keep those things in mind especially when you're interacting around people with disabilities like that Totally. And look, I mean, even I've been dealing with this, the, you know, the worst functional effects of this for three-ish years now. And one of my closest family members will still occasionally ask, you know, oh, well, you know, since since we're out already and you've already got your walker with you, why don't we go grab a coffee together? And I'm like, no, you, no, you don't understand. You can't just spring an extra thing on me. Like, <laughs> that's not how things work <laughs> with me. I can't, right. you know, and I think it's just really hard for people to understand because they're not living in the body that I'm living in and they're not living in the same house as me that, like, they don't really fully understand. And it takes... 
it takes a certain level of exposure, I think, to people with chronic illness to really start to understand how much it impacts people's lives. Anyway, how was your week in reading? So as you know, I went to a new place, which means, of course, I found a bookstore and I went in it. Oh. And I had the worst, like, what's the word for it? Like, like a brain freeze mm. in a bookstore where I could not choose a book for the life I don't know why I just got this really panicky feeling maybe because like I've had a lot of like not great reads and so I have this like internal pressure to find Mm. books that I really love and also like I'm trying to keep down my unread TBR shelf Mm. and I don't really want to add books to it but also I love like getting books when I'm somewhere so that I like associate that book with a place so like I didn't mind buying the book I just literally had so much pressure to find the right book (laughs) that I didn't find any books at all And it was really interesting because it helped me to figure out a little bit more about what my reading mood is right now. Mm. Because first I gravitated towards the Japanese translated literature section because they had a pretty significant section at this very small bookstore in Bar Harbor. But it was cool. And I think I was first struck by Convenience Store Woman, which is such a small book. I did not know that book was so small. Yeah. But I was thinking about maybe one of those and then I was like, nah, but you know, that feels like a whole thing to get into and I kind of want to go for something that I know I'm going to like. And then I was thinking about like Otessa Mushbag and I was like, well, I haven't read La Fona yet, but... Even if I like that book, I have a feeling I don't want a physical copy of it in my home just because it's too gross, you know? Like, Fair enough. I don't really need that energy in my home space. <laughs> okay. So that really feels like, for me, like a library book. I know I'm going to yeah. read it, and I actually think I'm more inclined to read it sooner rather than later. Like, maybe I've just had my break for long enough, mm-hmm. but... I don't think it's a book I want to own. It's also not like, I mean, it's a nice looking book, but it's not so pretty that I have Mm, to have it, you know? I mean, isn't it just like a sheep on the cover? It is. It's like a dead sheep. Yeah. Which, I mean, I think it's a cool looking book because it's like all black and I think it's like matte in the hardcover edition and stuff. And I wouldn't mind like having the set. However, I only have two or no, I have three of her books. I don't have all of them and I don't have the same like editions for all of them. So it's like not really purposeful to like have a set anyway it, I just recognized that I wanted to read that book but I didn't want to buy that book and then I was like oh what are other books in my TBR that I want to read that I also think are pretty and I would be happy to own regardless of if I end up liking it or not you know <laughs> and my first thought was Our Wives Under the Sea which is one I now feel like I want to pick up sooner but the tragic thing was they had it in a different edition what? like not the gorgeous edition. I didn't even know there was another edition. Uh, me neither. It was like, I mean, it was pretty enough. It was like mountains or maybe waves or something like that. But it just wasn't as pretty. I'm guessing it was waves now that I think about I've got it. I've list. Yeah, like it's a different edition. I'm not sure if it's like that book was published in the UK and this is the American edition or whatever. I mean, I've seen the pretty edition in the US, so it's not like it's unavailable to me, but oh. it just wasn't at this particular bookstore. What a weird cover. That's not, yeah, it looks like sand dunes, which is even weirder. Right. Yeah, I couldn't tell if it was mountains, waves, sand dunes. I assume. It, I mean, I, I'm assuming I wouldn't hate it meant... if the other one didn't already exist. I assume it's meant to be waves in the the color scheme is just odd but it looks because of the color scheme it looks like sand dunes right which is very weird i don't like it <sighs> i know it was it was very disappointing because i found it on the shelf and then i pulled it out I was like, after like maybe 20, 30 minutes of debating about what book I want, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to get this book. And I pulled it out and it wasn't the right one. I had to start all over again. Literally to the point that I set a timer for myself. I was like, if I don't find a book in the next 10 minutes, I'm leaving the store. 
without a book. And 10 whole minutes passed of me literally scanning the shelves for any book. And I found a lot of books that are on my TBR shelf, but just like weren't calling to me. And I didn't want that particular copy or whatever it was. Like I could not pick a book for the life of me. Like I couldn't pick a book with a gun to my head for some reason. (laughs) And I ended up leaving the bookstore without a book, which is maybe a first. Not really, but you know what I mean? Like Mm. not a common occurrence for me. I'm so disappointed for you about the Our Wives Under the because I, I I've just been looking at this other cover and I'm after staring at it for ages I can see that it's waves in like a sunset lighting but the fact that it took me so long to figure out whether it was waves or dunes when it's clearly supposed to be like a sea theme is already a problem and like the original cover is so gorgeous and it's so evocative and so perfect for like literary horror it's so beautiful it's just so i want perfect. it and oh i'm so it this this reminds me of I, I don't think i had this rant actually this green and pleasant land has the most stunning cover in one edition but that's not the main edition that seems to be floating around the main edition that seems to be floating around looks like this really kitschy horrible like uh, it, it's, it's just this really horrible cover and I'm glad that I got it on Kindle so that I don't have to look at it very often but there's one cover that's really gorgeous it looks like a village it's got like the path as like the scene setting I think it might be the default image on Storygraph but a lot of the copies of it that are available at least in international markets are this hideous like teal coloured or not teal like kind of aquamarine I think with like oh yeah really I'm looking kitsch, at it now yeah, I completely agree really kitsch font and then there's this weird bunting going on in the corner it's just like what what is this as someone who's read the book i'm like this is this is weird this is a weird vibe <laughs> yeah yeah i completely agree yeah i should have mentioned this when i was talking about that book but like weird vibe man weird <laughs> i don't know who designed that cover but it's hideous yeah it doesn't give the right impression i think nope. of that book nope not even a little anyway back to your troubles finding a book <laughs> sorry i got off track there <laughs> no worries no worries. I get infuriated well, I'm by bad say, book covers, especially oh, for the books I love. I completely understand. <laughs> well, I'll just say that on the bright side, after this really challenging bookstore experience, I at least came away with a, an idea of what books I want to move on to after I finish Peter Pan, which are, you know, Labvona and Our Wives Under the Sea, which are very different vibes from Peter Pan, even though I'm thoroughly enjoying Peter Pan still and will be finishing it soon I think I'm okay. still in the middle of it but book talk of that coming that's soon that's just a, a exactly <laughs> that's just a glimpse into the life of a mood reader okay. where like I can be completely swayed by just one day at the bookstore mm. contemplating what I could be possibly in the mood for if I had all the options in front of me hmm. interesting cool and I didn't see it coming at all I like it I like it I'm just excited that you'll be reading <laughs> our wives under the sea soon me too me too Oddly, the thing that's drawing me to it is the horror element Mm. for some reason. Like, I'm kind of in the mood for something spooky. And I don't know if that will still be true after I read Lapvona, because I think Mm. I'm going to draw myself towards Lapvona first. And the thing is, with my mood reading, is that I'm constantly making TBR lists, and I almost (laughs) absolutely never stick to them. I'll probably read one and then totally pivot to a whole new TBR list (laughs) of, like, atmospheres I'm interested in, like, getting into. Mm -hmm. So hopefully I move on to ROI's end of the but no promises Fair because enough. you know anyway but i'm gonna read it eventually so how about you how was your week in reading ben pretty good i finished jane eyre which you know as people will have seen from the title is going to be our main topic of discussion for today that's the only book i finished this week 
I am currently reading three books. It's unusual for me. I'm still reading On a Sunbeam by Tilly Walden as my bedtime read. It's a really chunky graphic novel. I'm really, really enjoying it. It's so lovely and it's so beautiful. I'm halfway through now, really loving it. Cannot wait to keep going. I've also read maybe, I don't know, like a quarter, maybe less of the Moonies book club book read for this month, which is One Dark Window by Rachel Gillick. Enjoying it more than I expected to so far. This is the fantasy. It's, it says it's a fantasy horror so far. It's mostly just fantasy, but it's the magic system is interesting. It involves like cards as in like, hmm, like the playing cards kind of magic is stored in like cards but then there's also been this virus that's gone around where people have been infected with magic but like anyone who they saw getting infected with this magic they were quarantined and killed Mm. and then like this essentially seems to be the premise i'm not sure it's still very early days in the book and i don't want to give too much away anyway but yeah it's, it's more enjoyable than i thought so far the magic system seems interesting and i'm interested to see where it goes the audiobook reader is not great but i've heard worse audiobook readers so i'm just kind of dealing with it the other book i have just started reading recently because it came into my library i completely forgot that i'd reserved it because i reserved it so long ago a man called uva very very popular with my library so i yeah it's been on hold for a long time one of the battered old copies like literally some of the pages are sticky taped in and stuff like that (laughs) been very very well loved i've only read the first i think three chapters and it's very amusing so far it seems like it's going to be right up my alley i'm excited to read more of it for those of you who for like the one of you out there maybe who's never heard of this book this is an international bestseller by friedrich bachmann translated from the swedish by henning koch and it has been fairly recently made into a movie starring Tom Hanks called A Man Called Otto because God forbid they try and market anything to Americans that can't immediately be pronounced by Americans. No offense, Nina. It was more a commentary on American production companies than on Americans themselves. Of course, of course. (laughs) So yeah, I'm enjoying it so far. From what I've heard, this is going to be a big crying book, so I'm excited for that. It's basically about a curmudgeonly 59-year-old man who's been forced to retire earlier than he expected. He's very set in his way and it's already causing a lot of amusement. He seems like the kind of person you'd really hate to come across in real life, but that you're going to absolutely love to read in detail. So (laughs) really looking forward to continuing that one. Awesome. I look forward to hearing about it. You haven't read this one, have you? No, I haven't. Hmm. It kind of falls into that category of books that like are almost too popular to really be Mm. on my TBR, you know, like I kind of need like a personalized recommendation to get it out of that sort of popular prison, you know? Gotcha. Yeah. Yep. I had it in that as well until Jesse the Reader had it in a, it was a video where he was judging people based on their favorite books, like judging people's personalities based on their favorite books. And someone mentioned this one and he was like, you are the kind of person that likes to be miserable and <laughs> likes things that are going to make you cry. And I was like, that's me. I should read that book. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how it ended up. I actually on my TV, I was like, you know what? I should actually get around to reading that book. And uh, that'll do and it. I realized that I was never going to actually get around to reading it unless I put a reserve at the library. I was like, this, you know what? This is a perfect example of a book that's going to be on my reserve so long that it'll surprise me when it'll show up. And it did. Love it. Did you make the trip to the library for that I one did. or did it deliver it's, to you? I, I did. It's, it's a physical book. Awesome. Yes. Yeah, like I said, battered old copy. Some of the pages are like taped in. 
I have a question. Mm. This is this is purely based on your own personal opinions. Yes. If you damage a library book, like if a page rips by accident or whatever it is, are you supposed to fix it or are you supposed to let the library fix it? I think because maybe they have a special way. They definitely also I feel like you should fix they it. They definitely have a special way because the way I've seen them fix this is like seamless. It's beautiful. Like I was looking at it like, oh, oh okay. Wow. I definitely think you should tell them and ask what they want to do based on like what kind of damage it is because if it's non-fixable damage then like they may just want to get a new book and then you have to pay for that right right fair I was wondering because I've had situations where I like tried to fix something and I was like you know this feels like good because then the next reader because I'm like what if they don't even look at it you know you tell them you definitely tell them you go like you go in and you tell right. them what happened. Right. You show them the damage. You say like, look, I, I in your case you can be like, I'm a qualified art restorer. I'm happy to <laughs> fix this if you want me to. <laughs> just say the word. I just thought I'd ask you what you want me to do. That's definitely a smart approach that didn't occur yeah. to me. So I'm glad you brought it up because there are also situations where like there was like a minor damage and I was like, you know what? Maybe I'll leave it because mm. maybe they fix it. I don't know. So I, I just have always been nebulous on that. So I, I appreciate yeah. the, the advice. As with many things in life, ask them is usually the answer. Yeah. True, true, very true. <laughs> Anywho. Sounds like you've had a lovely week in reading. Yes, yes. Very productive. It's a bit scattered, but very productive. So what about you? What have you been reading? So I have continued Peter Pan. It turned out to be the absolute perfect beach read for my time in Maine. Just like I was in a cabin in a place that made me feel nostalgic, made me remember my childhood running around. And so it was exactly what I needed in that place. It's odd that you're getting nostalgia for a book that you didn't read in your childhood. I guess because of the movie? Well, no, I mean, I'm talking about the nostalgia of the camp, you know, like childhood, running around, you know, like imagine making little fairy houses in the woods you know what I mean like that sort of vibe and I mean also there's nostalgia for the movie definitely but I think it was more about like the environment that I think that the book like one of the major themes is nostalgia so like feeling Mm -hmm. the actual nostalgia around me of my environment really elevated the book for me and I have found a couple moments of datedness Mm -hmm. that might have bothered me more if I wasn't so thoroughly enjoying the atmosphere and the setting of the book it kind of like neutralized that for me also because they felt like pretty brief moments like I also I've been going in a funny thing I started doing with the book was like imagining reading it to a child and there's a surprising amount of violence and foul mm-hmm. language in this book mm-hmm. I mean maybe less so for like a non-American and I don't even consider myself that like I don't know prude that I like care so much about language but maybe like I, I was thinking about would I read this to a child and like what I might not want to say out loud while I'm reading it to a child and so I have started going in and like crossing things out <laughs> Just, like, as a fun little exercise, not in a way that I can't see mm. it if I wanted to read it again, but just, like, to, like, sort of laugh at the book a little bit and be like, wait, who is this for? Mm-hmm. And how are you reading this to a child? Um, weird amount of violence, but right? There is a weird amount of violence. Well, I mean, I guess it's not, like, so much. There have been moments. So, like, basically, crossing things out has given me a very clear show of, like, how much of the book has, A, the kind of stuff that I wouldn't want to show a child because of, like, violence or language, and B, the kind of stuff I wouldn't want to show a child because it's offensive. Mm. And it feels like a very small amount of the book, and I'm a good, like, two-thirds of the way through. Mm. Not to say that that excuses the way that writer spoke about you know specifically Native Americans Mm. what's frustrating about it is that it's really specific 
and very obviously connected to a real culture Mm -hmm. because I think there are some authors like of a previous time who make comments that feel let's say racy but do it in a way that feels like more of like an allusion Mm -hmm. to a race rather than a direct reference to a race of people and that can make it easier for people of color to read themselves into a book and this is something we'll talk about a little bit with Jane Eyre Mm. well maybe a lot with Jane Eyre which is that when a specific people are like called out in a negative way it makes it so much harder for the reader to sort of pass over Mm -hmm. it without thinking too much about it and so I think you know obviously there are edits that I'm not that only I would suggest to the author but that I'm physically making in my book but overall I think the story is really beautiful and I think while there's a lot of conversation about boys roles and girls roles there's also an element of it that feels authentic in that it's not like necessarily making discussion about like girls and boys inherently feel this way it's kind of making discussion about things that like girls and boys are like raised to take on you know like Mm -hmm. little girls watching their mothers and wanting to emulate someone they admire you know Mm -hmm. and little boys watching their fathers and maybe adopting behaviors that are less considerate of those around them and just like thinking about like how that reflects maybe heterosexual relationships of the time period this book was written in and you know things like that Mm -hmm. so I don't know there's a lot about it that I can understand being frustrating if you don't feel connected to the story or if it's not fitting in at the right moment in your life but for me it's definitely definitely fitting in at the right moment in my life and I'm thoroughly enjoying the world and the atmosphere I'm excited to see where the story goes but I also know that this story isn't like really gonna surprise me it's not so much about the plot I'm curious though about how the book ends and how it wraps up the experience of having to choose to put away the childhood dreams and embrace and even enjoy find the beauty in the real world so that's like the message that I think I want to explore in this book Mm -hmm. more like towards the end and so I'm definitely looking out for that but as of right now I foresee this being like a 4.25 okay all right well we'll see how you feel next week okay cool the other book that I started which honestly I've started this many times in the last maybe six months or more like I just sort of start this book periodically but never get past maybe a couple hours into it and it's a long book Mm -hmm. so I haven't I don't think I've brought this up on the podcast before but I once again have started Dune have I brought this up to you no I started Dune so yeah no I've started Dune maybe like three or four times during the duration of this podcast but never got significantly far into it enough to like bring it up as a currently reading because then I would just drop it I've just like been flirting with this book Hmm. you know I think because it's one of those nice long otherworldly stories that I can put on as like background noise as an alternative to like a podcast or something not like a book that like I don't know I'm so in it for every detail Mm -hmm. but more like having it as like background atmosphere while I'm doing other things Mm -hmm. and I think I'm gonna go on with it because I've just been flirting with this book for a while and I feel like I should commit it is and time. stop being silly and like actually <laughs> read it it might be time it might also completely not be time and i might not like it's been like my bedtime read like i've just been sort of putting it on as i go to bed mm. or like get ready for bed and do all those sort of nighttime routine things mm. and it totally could be dropped <laughs> you never know but at this moment i feel like there's a good chance i'll continue further into it i think i've gotten further than i have before and that's still only like maybe a couple hours mm. so we'll see and it's a 22 hour long book so Cool. Sounds good. Yeah. 
that's all I have to report on reading this week. I didn't finish anything, but I am glad that I had an enjoyable week in reading because both books I'm definitely liking. I mean, I didn't say very much about Dune, but I'm not super far into it, A, and B, it feels like such a ubiquitous book. It's like a classic mm. that most people generally know about mm. that's like, you know, sci-fi story about a boy who is sort of a chosen one and it deals with like interstellar imperialism and politics and i don't know if there's i think there's a sort of magic in it but it's sort of like magic in that sci-fi way where it feels like magic isn't the right word Mm. but maybe a power you know yeah um but that's like i'm gonna have to explore that more as i go farther into the book to really understand what it is Mm. and how to describe it so hopefully more to report on that later cool i assume no hall since you had the bookshop freeze (laughs) tragically no hall yeah tragically no hall any tvr one that i added that i'll talk about today is a memoir called happily a personal history with fairy tales by sabrina ora mark Mm -hmm. and it's a memoir written in an essay format on fairy tales and their surprising relevance to modern life from a Jewish woman raising black children in American South based on the acclaimed Paris Review column Happily. This just sounded super cute and sweet and it's got a fun cover that kind of gives like magical realism vibes. So mm-hmm. I'm hoping this is sort of like Fierce Femmes and Notorious Liars where it sort of mm. weaves in reality and fantasy maybe a little bit. Or mm-hmm. if it doesn't, that would be fine too. But just like, I like the idea of reflecting on how fairy tales and folklore can help us to like make meaning in our lives and reflect on our lives. Mm-hmm. And just sounds like a really sweet story. And I've been feeling memoirs this last like year. Honestly, like I've only read two, which are, you know, boy and I'm glad my mom died but that's more than I'd ever read before I really like didn't feel memoirs at all and this one kind of spoke to me and Mm -hmm. since I've been into them lately I added it what about you? Cool. Sounds good. I've only added one in the last week. Go me, self-control. Um, <laughs> but this is one that, according to Storygraph, you have both read and enjoyed, actually. Ooh. And I can't mention yet what it's actually about, because it's going to be a spoiler for Jane Eyre, but I'll go into it a bit more later. <gasps> It's, I know what book it is. Yes, you do. It's Wide Slugass OC. Yep. Which <laughs> Nina literally just held up to the camera by Jean Rhys. And I will explain when we get into the Jane Eyre section why that is <laughs> on my TBR. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. I'm very excited to talk about that. So, and on that note, I, I love I love we? that you had that to hand. You were so like, this book is going to come up today anyway. That's great. <laughs> I've got two books in my hand. One of them's Jane Eyre. One of them's Wide Sargasso Sea. So I'm very excited to get into this. I love that you were already going to talk about this book today. That's great. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. Spoiler alert, we are about to talk about Jane Eyre. If you have not read this book, I would highly, highly recommend that you do not listen to this section because Jane Eyre is a book. I thought you were going to say I highly recommend you don't read it. No, no. I'm not saying that at all. I recommend you read it because I think it's it is. It is actually worth reading. Conversation. It's definitely worth reading. Sorry. Yes. And this conversation <laughs> will be worth listening to. I can promise you that. We, we, ha- we are going to have a lot to say. I highly recommend that you go listen to uh, go. Well, you can go listen to it if you like. Go, go read it. Go listen to it, whatever medium you prefer. And then come back and listen to the end of this episode another time because this is not your standard romance novel there are twists and turns there are mysteries there are spoilers so please don't listen to this thinking oh it's just a romance novel we know what's going to happen 
you don't. So please, there are spoilers ahead. Save yourself from them. Thank you. (laughs) That being said. Can I open up this discussion with a little story? A really funny story that you can laugh at me for. Please. So, and I cannot believe I haven't talked about this on the podcast You have mentioned a couple of times that you read this book to do some special trip or something, right? Yes. So are you familiar with the podcast Harry Potter and the Sacred Text? Because of you, I am. Yes. (laughs) Oh, okay. I've already talked about it. Well, anyway, that is one of the most amazing podcasts ever made. I love it to death and highly recommend it to everyone. It will improve anyone's life. Even if you're not a Harry Potter fan, listen to that podcast. It's incredible. But also, why are you not a Harry Potter fan? So one of the co-hosts on that podcast is Vanessa Zoltan, and she has her own podcast. She actually has many podcasts. She's a big podcasting girly. One of her podcasts is called Hot and Bothered. The first few seasons were about writing romance novels, and since then, she's started pivoting on the podcast to talking about specific romance novels and deep diving into them the way she does, sort of-ish, in the Harry Potter podcast, where she goes chapter by chapter, discussing deeply the themes and meaning and sort of history and context of that chapter and the writing in the book and everything. Mm-hmm. She's also the co-founder of a company that does reading pilgrimages in which you pay a bunch of money for a week-long retreat in a destination location that's like related to the book. She is a professional chaplain and so on this trip you not only receive like room and board and hikes and other activities and interaction book discussion with fellow like lovers of the book but you also receive like personal chaplaincy experiences and I've been like obsessed with the idea of doing doing one of these trips ever since I found her and her podcast and her world. And so when I saw that she was doing one during one of my winter breaks and it was going to be in the UK and I was going to be in the UK anyway for a wedding and it was for Jane Eyre, which has historically been like her favorite book that she like did her whole master's program on and like her thesis was about analyzing secular texts as sacred texts like using the sacred text format for secular texts and she did this on Jane Eyre as her thesis project and so I was like you know what I trust Vanessa with my everything. Like, I love her. I love her intention and the way she executes what she does in these trips and these podcasts. So I was like, you know, this is this is it. This is the time that I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. And I had been working really hard that year. I had some extra money and I decided for the first time, like, to really make a big adult purchase, you know, mm-hmm. without reading this book. So then, you know, I read the book. And it was one of the most challenging experiences because I didn't, you know, at first I went into it not fully like hating it, just being sort of like meh about it or, Mm -hmm. you know, thinking like I'm interested in finding out how you can dig deeper into this to find the meaning, being curious, you know. Mm -hmm. But then you hit later in the book and things start to devolve in this way that makes it so hard to appreciate. You hit chapter 27 and when I did, I put the book down and I had to step away physically from it. Mm. And I think I, like, in that moment, like, googled, like, is Jane Eyre racist? <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is like the most watered down way to approach like understanding this book. But I think in that moment, I was just so shocked because everyone on the internet loves this book. I mean, this person that I admire so greatly, this was like her favorite book growing up. This is what she did her thesis project on. I'm going on a retreat in my mind. I was thinking I'm going on a retreat in a few months with a group of women who also 
thoroughly love this book mm-hmm. and it is one of their favorite books. How do I show up for them and contribute to a conversation about a book that I instantly disliked and have only grown to dislike more and the tragic conclusion to this story is that even though it took me months to sort of overcome that initial repulsion and think like I am going to get something amazing out of this experience regardless and I'm going to commit myself to taking this book seriously and thinking about it deeply and whatever comes out of that comes out of it. I also listened to her podcast Hot and Bothered in which she has a season that goes into chapter by chapter the whole book of Jane Eyre. It's called On Air Mm -hmm. and that helps me to understand her perspective on it and how she's grown in her opinions and to you know win back some of that understanding for her because she talks complexly and honestly and rigorously about this story and its implications and its role in history and stuff. And it helped me to really appreciate her more after like losing a little bit of faith. And I was ready to go on this trip. And two weeks before I was supposed to be there, I was already in the UK at this point for the wedding. Two weeks before the trip was start to commence, the Delta variant of COVID Mm. hit the UK very hard and the trip was canceled. Mm. And so I not only have these complicated feelings about this book, I have this like unfinished history Mm. with it, which honestly, I may be interested in the future in signing up for another Jane Eyre pilgrimage just to like get (laughs) that experience that I was expecting to get. But I also feel like I've moved on in a lot of ways. And I know I'm going to go on a pilgrimage with her at some point in my life. But will it be a Jane Eyre? I don't know. That is to be seen. Can you believe that? Yikes. It was a pretty tragic series of events. And when I say this trip was a lot of money, it was a lot of money. I've never spent this much money on myself before. It was a big choice. And I really had to commit myself to it. And the fact that like, part of the thing was I can't back out. If I back out, I lose the money. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't like I had the option. But frustratingly... They backed out, (laughs) which for good reason, for obviously for good reason. There was a pregnant woman on this trip and, you know, obviously I would not want us to get stuck in the country and, you know, any of the various reasons why this was not a good Mm -hmm. idea to continue with this trip in that moment. But it was absolutely devastating. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, that's intense. Honestly, the idea of the reading pilgrimage idea in the first place sounds super intense. Yeah, it no. culty. Well, so, okay, this might actually interest you in it. Her sixth season, following the Jane Eyre season of Hot and Bothered, is called Live from Pemberley. I am actually about subscribed. Pride and I am subscribed to that one. I haven't listened to it yet, but I oh, am really? subscribed to it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, it's all the same podcast. She just, like, called it live from Pemberley yeah. after, you know. But anyway, so she does Pride and Prejudice pilgrimages. She does lots of different books, and it's not just her. It's a whole team of people who do them. Mm. But, yeah, this was something that really I had built up in my mind for so long, and it concluded in the most unsatisfying way, mm. so... Lots of feelings, lots of feelings. Now, the first thing I wanted to ask you was, judging by what you've just said about all of your thoughts, why have you rated this four stars? Because, well, okay, according to my rating system, like a 3.75 or a three-star book is one that I don't think was necessarily written well, but that I enjoyed for the plot. Mm -hmm. Or it could be the opposite, where like I didn't enjoy the plot, but I thought, you know, it had some merit of writing. Mm -hmm. This one, I rated four stars because not only did I think, upon my second reading, so I read this twice, I read this up to chapter 27, and then I stopped, put it down for a week, and reread the entire thing. And upon rereading it with the perspective of like expecting what was 
you know, to happen. Mm-hmm. I was able to appreciate and enjoy the writing a lot more. I do think it was really well written in terms of like skill of storytelling, of atmosphere. I do think it had a very like revolutionary story to tell mm-hmm. in the time that it was written. So I ha- I think it has a lot of merit. Additionally, I think it's definitely a book that I recommend people read mm-hmm. at the very least for like perspective into how we have changed, you know, like how we have changed in our understanding of feminism and our understanding of like romantic dynamics. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot that this book has to contribute, especially like, as a testament to that time. And it's like a historical record that I think has a lot of value. Mm-hmm. And while I I think there's a lot about it that I did not like strictly, let's say, enjoy reading. From an academic perspective, I did enjoy participating in the experience of reading this book. Yep. So I think that's what bumped it up to a four star. Yep. Completely fair. Yeah. The reason I ask that is because a four star for you is higher than a four star for me. And I also rated it four stars. Really? Really? Okay. Atmosphere, writing, intrigue, all very high. Really enjoyed that. Yeah. But the logic of the story, the characters both really let it down. Logic especially. (laughs) The thing that really got me in terms of, you know me, I'm not like convenience plots especially in an adult novel, really get to me in terms of like logic and the fact that when she's destitute after leaving Thornfield, the fact that she happens to wander into the home of her long lost cousins, come on. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Like convenience plot device on steroids, that one. No, absolutely. And also the fact that Mr. Rochester gets exactly what he needs to make him pliable enough to be a more equal mate to her in that he becomes blind, which is the only thing that makes him more willing to be like an equal participant in a relationship with her rather than just controlling her and not accepting any help. Like, she literally says to him in a conversation, like, I actually don't mind that you're blind now because at least now you are more willing to accept care from me rather than just be a master all the time. And he's like, I accept that that's a part of me that was not great and now it's better. And I'm like, if this is what you needed to do to this character to make him redeemable, why is he the romantic lead? And also, if you needed to introduce... Sinjin, who is the most obnoxious, even more controlling, boring, over-the-top, saintly man as comparison just to make Mr. Rochester look amazing in comparison when he comes back. Like, honestly, I was so relieved to see Mr. Rochester come back after seeing Sinjin, and when I had that reaction, I was like, Charlotte, what have you done to me? <laughs> like, I know exactly what you've done to me. You've God introduced it, this Sinjin character to make me want Mr. Rochester back. I don't want Mr. Rochester back. He's horrible. And they've done all this off-screen thing where he's like, oh, he's a brave hero. He rescued all the servants from a fire. <laughs> and now he's blind. Yeah, great. But Poor like, you. He's a manipulative asshole and he locked his own wife up who was already mad, which obviously made her more mad. And, oh, and like, okay... Even within the Audrey Guide, there was this thing, and I've seen it online as well in some commentary, about... And I'm, I'm jumping all over the place. I'm sorry about this. We'll be more strategic when we go through your notes, but I'm just like, this is where I'm at, having just finished this book yesterday. There was a thing in the Audrey notes about... <laughs> about the wife, Bertha, 
having thrown herself off the roof so that Jane and Rochester could be together. I understand that what that comment probably means is from the narrative perspective she needed to die so that they could be together but the way it was phrased made it sound like she was sacrificing herself for Rochester's happiness I don't think she's doing that and, and but and, and no I think that is what she was saying because then she's like but then why did she set the fire what do people think of that and I'm just here like this woman has been driven mad she set fire to the house did she read the book I know this the woman set fire to the house and then killed herself because her life is miserable obviously that's what's happened duh Right. And I'm I like, mean, I'm I like why actually... do you think she set fire to the house? She's mad. <laughs> She's angry. She's mad in every sense of the word. <sighs> Sorry. I have so many feelings about... And this is actually such a good thing to have read so recently after I read Mrs. Dalloway because there's a whole, like, a huge amount of Mrs. Dalloway theming is focused on the treatment of people who are perceived as mad and how damaging it can be and the contrast (laughs) of having read this quite soon after reading that is extra infuriating. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, anyone who doesn't feel infuriated after reading this book didn't read the book, yeah. in my opinion. And I think the fury is part of it. Like, I know it's of the time, and I, I, and I try, I try to go of the time, of the time, blah, 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 keeping that in mind. But there are certain things that, even within the time, are not acceptable. And keeping someone a secret from the rest of the world, and keeping them locked up, surely is one of them right? Surely. (laughs) Surely. Well, okay. Here's another aspect to why I ended up reading it four stars was that on my second reading of this book, I really dedicated myself to reading it from the perspective of Bertha. And Mm. that allowed me to A, see Rochester and Jane and all of their antics and all of the convenience plot as honestly like background Mm. (laughs) in a weird way, even though obviously that is like the main part of the book. Mm. But It allowed me to see her journey in a whole new light and recognize her personhood that shines through Mm. these moments and the way that she doesn't say a single word in this book, Mm. and yet she creates the atmosphere. She is the foundation for everything good in this book. And so I think that, whether intentional or not, was beautifully done. Yeah. I do just want to quickly mention... I actually managed to see the twist coming, and Nina can attest to this. I managed to read into the situation. I honestly managed to read into Rochester's suspiciousness so quickly that I could see at least... It's not very well masked, honestly. No, it's not very well masked, but like I I saw a version of the twist coming from like maybe chapter, I don't even know, like 10 or something. And then I had guessed the actual outcome by probably, what was it, like at least 10 chapters earlier than the reveal. I can't remember now. So I was actually in a fortunate enough position to be able to, on my first read, read it coming from the perspective of, I'm pretty sure there's someone trapped. (laughs) Mr. Rochester's keeping someone up there. Well, so I knew vaguely that the mad woman in the attic concept came from this book. Right, I had no idea. So I was not surprised. Like, I knew there was a mad woman in the attic, but I didn't know who she was necessarily or what her relationship was to the characters or how it was going to impact the book and stuff. And so when those things were being revealed, I was able to, like, 
accept that in a Mm -hmm. way that like it was what I expected the book to be about however what I didn't expect and what really threw me off and what stopped me at that chapter 27 mark was how this book has so deeply dated itself by basing the sort of justification for her entrapment and for the love between Jane and Rochester to be about her racial background and how it makes her of lower personhood, Um, you know? And that was what stopped me because, what? I don't know if it was about that. I think, like, it was about him. Well, no, she definitely... First of all, okay. What stopped me when I was reading the book was when Drastester tries to justify to Jane why he made the decisions he did and that it was because she essentially doesn't have full personhood because she's not white, because she was half rabid, a half pygmy, you know, all of the words that are used in this text to explain why Rochester was right for wanting a civilized relationship. Mm-hmm. And so I think there are a lot of books of this time period that tell stories in which race and class play a significant role, but are sort of background in a way that like a person of color can read the book and not overtly be like faced with the reality of how people like them were treated in that time. Mm -hmm. Like Jane Austen is a great example of how obviously all of the characters who get happy endings are white and to some degree privileged. And, you know, like there's a lot of like privilege present in the book, but a person of color can read that book and see themselves in it. Mm. You know, you can read it in this almost colorblind way. Whereas this book, what makes it so challenging and less enjoyable, I think, and yeah. less ubiquitous and also less timeless is that you can't ignore yes. those factors because they are not only the basis for why Bertha was locked up, they're also the basis for why Jane and Rochester should belong to each other because they are of equal status in the eyes of God, that they're equally pure and equally deserving of a happy ending as Rochester had a imagine for himself you know so that's what really tore me out of this book is feeling like why would I root for these characters Mm -hmm. who care about each other on the basis of putting other people down in this really despicable way that's when I thought you know I don't see this as a romance. I mean, it's a romance, but it's just, I don't feel romanced. No. I don't feel like this is romantic to me at all. It really just like killed the mood. And I mean, that had been building up for many chapters, but once you get the reveal of Bertha and the circumstances around her imprisonment, that really struck me and forced me to separate myself from the book. Yeah, so... That's interesting because the emphasis on madness was what stuck out to me more rather than the emphasis on race, whereas the emphasis on race seems to have stuck out to you more, which is very interesting. I think the argument is that she was mad because of her race, Mm. because she's a lesser human, unable to control her emotions, because she's closer to an animal than a person. I think that was like how I understood his justification. And that's, I mean, that's also the take that Jean Reese sort of goes by honestly the argument that i held was that she wasn't actually mad maybe she was very emotional as a person and but in a way that maybe today wouldn't be diagnosable beyond general depression that what made her mad is the treatment of the people 
around her, towards her. Yeah, possibly. So, I mean, she's described as, I think, half Creole, and it is described having the madness passed down on her mother's side, which is the Creole side, so there is some... Right. Yeah. He mentions that, like, when they first were married, things seemed normal, and then it started to come out. So, yeah, maybe... I do see where you're coming from in terms of probably what was interpreted as madness was probably not madness, but in terms of his seeing her as not a person because of the race, I thought more what he was saying was around... I mean, don't get me wrong, the race is definitely part of it, but like what I was hearing was that he thought he deserved a wife who was not mad rather than a wife who was white. Like, I, that's what it sounded like to me. Like, he deserved I someone think, who could I actually think that comfort is what him he's saying. who could, you know, actually, you know, not hate him. I totally agree that that's what he was saying and what he maybe believed. Yeah. But what my argument is that the reasons why she's quote-unquote mad yeah. are the same reasons why black women are perceived as angry. Yes. You know, yeah. like, because of the, the treatment. A, because of the stereotypical perception of them but b because of the real treatment of them the uh, gaslighting and discrimination the silencing of their emotions Mm. i mean even for jane women in this book are silenced like there's a part that i was skimming through earlier where i saw jane was upset i think it was before the wedding maybe uh, around the incident where bertha comes Mm. out and you know tears her veil where grace Poole like gives her a sleeping draft to calm Mm. her emotions and i was like ah isn't that just the best way to deal with a woman who is afraid (laughs) you know like just just put her to sleep yeah (laughs) Yeah. yes so i think it's i can see the argument for why it appears that his motivations aren't racially based but i think they inherently are just because of the context yeah it's also hard not to see his perception of her as like a violent animal when he's using words to describe her like monster maniac demon goblin that she lacks character and constitution you know like Mm. these are also like these like animal likening descriptors i have to say i did forget about the race aspect and i did wonder why they kept describing her as having like purple lips and stuff i was like what's the purple coming from right and like her hair being like fur and stuff like that yeah yeah now that she's filthy that's coming back to me now yeah yeah no you're right that's Yeah, so it's hard to imagine yourself in the situation. I remember, okay, like I said, when I put this book down and had that very, you know, like, immediate reaction to Google, like, out of pure confusion, like, is Chain Air racist? The first article that came up was one from someone who was writing about that experience of reading old literature that is colorblind versus not Mm. colorblind. I can probably find that article and send it to you so we can add it to the show notes because I Mm. thought it was very helpful for summarizing how I've been feeling about this book. But yeah, that's a really good reason, I think, to read Jean Reese's Wide Sargasso Sea Mm. because it goes so much into how the treatment of women in the specific location where she was raised and under the conditions that Jean Reese would assume according to like what Rochester describes of his previous marriage as being unlivable and there's like no way to come out of that experience without the rage that is described in Jane Eyre Mm. and my personal opinion is that there was little to no clinical basis Mm. for the madness aside from maybe what had built up over the years from being locked away and isolated Mm. and treated like an animal and also the fact that they mention that the madness runs 
in the family. Do they actually say in the women in the family? Actually, come to think yes, of it? I'm pretty sure. Because it could just be that that's how, like, Creole women express themselves as well. That's, yeah, it's also a cultural thing. That's another layer to it, like we were saying. I think this is something that's common to a lot of non-white Western European cultures mm. is a very strong, you know, maybe passionate speech yeah. or, like, I know in my own family's, like, Middle Eastern background, it definitely felt, like, relatable how in Wide Sargasso Sea, you see a lot of that, like, passionate speech being normal around like the people she grew up with and with her family and then being isolated as it relates to her interactions with not only Rochester, but also like her brother who essentially like we know sort of like sold her off to Rochester mm. in a way. We kind of know that from Jane Eyre and he has this like sort of redemption arc where he like tries to get her back and stuff. But ultimately like he was the one who gave her away. So like the people trying to pretend to assimilate into white culture and rejecting the ways they were mm. raised and stuff. So what I think is actually so valuable about reading this book, like I said, from the perspective of Bertha, like going back and really analyzing it, is that you see that there are so many instances of her sanity, you know? Like she makes so many choices in this book that are very clear and very intentional and I think she has so much more agency than she's recognized to have mm. because think about the fact that like you know yes she lights Rochester's room on fire but she knows which room is his mm. she's clearly like explored this house she knows what she's doing with the fire she knows who she's trying to hurt she I'm pretty sure she like there's some part where she like tells Jane to go back in her room or something or maybe that's Grace Poole I can't remember but there was some warning to Jane like she's not intending to hurt other people she's intending to hurt the person who hurt her and she also knows to watch out for when grace has been having one of those nights when she's been drinking a little more and she's like a bit more sleepy like she knows right. what to look for exactly yeah and she even goes so far as to warn jane which i think is more than she has to do honestly i mean when's, obviously like jane is isn't contributing directly oh, right the i think well, i, I yeah, see yeah. Yeah. Yes, I see the veil tearing as yes, a warning yeah. to Jane not to marry Rochester, yeah. or at the very least to scare her yeah. off from it, but with, like, very good intentions, mm -hmm. you know, to someone she does not owe anything to, honestly. Like, if I were her, it would be very hard for me to feel, like, a good intentions for anyone participating in this household, but, like, the way that she sees the personhood in Jane and wants to warn her away from this horrible situation, I have absolutely no expectation that she was warning her away from Jane marrying an already married man mm -hmm. the way that Jane sees it to a degree you know like she sees the problem as him being married mm -hmm. already I think she was purely warning Jane away from this monster that Rochester now, here's, is here's a question how do you think Charlotte Bronte intended for that to be viewed how Jane interprets it or how you're interpreting it I definitely don't think she interpreted it the way I'm interpreting it, but I want to think there's some kind of middle ground because it feels too on the mm. nose. Like, if she really wanted Bertha to be completely personless, then I don't think she would have made her intention so clear and acute. Mm -hmm. But I also don't think that she saw this story as Bertha's 
I would see the story as Bertha's revenge, and I don't think mm. she saw it that way. I, I definitely think, think so she either. saw Bertha as like a plot piece, right? I agree. Whereas for me, when I'm reading this book, I see this story of a woman who is silenced but who is present and who reaps this gorgeous revenge over the people who have wronged her. Mm. And like I see her jumping off the building not as a way to allow Jane to marry Rusty Rochester, and not even like purely as a way to get back at Rochester like yes burning the house down and stuff like that's get back at Rochester but I think honestly like she's freeing herself yes yeah, you know clearly. of this horrible life that is unlovable very clearly and so I think that choice is for her and for herself only and I think that is beautiful like this moment where you see her find her power yeah and even though it's tragic in the way that she has to find her power she gets an ending that I think mm. feels really meaningful and the only ending that can really happen in this space yeah. and be somewhat maybe positive. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously it's difficult to say, you know, given that she dies, but you know what I mean? I mean, she had her own power of it. You know, it was better that than she murdered by someone, you know? Right. Yeah, it's interesting because I completely agree and I really like the fact that we're able to do this kind of reinterpretation to give her a sense of power. I do think, though, that Charlotte Bronte didn't want any of that and I also don't think Charlotte Bronte is afraid of being on the nose. I think that she probably just liked the gothic, over-the-top, melodramatic image of a woman tearing a veil as an ominous warning of your marriage will be... You know, it's like a dramatic thing to do, you know? I I, I genuinely think that's all that that moment was in Bronte's mind, would be my guess. We do know that Charlotte Bronte was involved in the emancipation movement and, like, ending the colonies Mm. in the West Indies and stuff, but that doesn't exclude her from the group of people who still, like, didn't fully believe that people of other races were fully human. And so it's, like, this complicated balance that was probably present in her, like, making this book. I think she had some views that were maybe progressive, but overall, I just think the one of the biggest faults of this book is that it's so dated. Like, it doesn't have that timeless feel because it's honestly hard to read. And the only way to read it and enjoy it, in my opinion, is to read it in a way that the author completely did not intend. I agree. I really do. I really enjoyed this as a gothic horror mystery. I enjoyed the middle section, like the mystery section, and I enjoyed figuring out the plot, and especially when it was revealed, and I was like, ha ha I knew it! But yeah, as far as Mr. Rochester being a romantic lead, there's a lot of Mr. Rochester, maybe not sympathizers, but at least apologists (laughs) out there. I am not joining them. I do not like him. He is a better match for Jane than Sinjin. I think he and Jane are relatively well matched because I don't think Jane's a great person either, to be completely honest. Oh yeah, by the end of the book I totally felt like, oh, you know, you two both suck. Go off and suck together. You know? (laughs) Basically, yeah. That's pretty much how I felt. I was like, by the end of the book I basically was like, okay, I'm happy for you both. I don't like either of you, but I'm happy for you both. (laughs) Yeah. No, definitely. Glad that you got what you wanted, at least. (laughs) The rest of the book is kind of like take it or leave it for me. After Bertha died, it kind of like loses Mm. an element of excitement. It just sort of wraps up the rest of the story. So I don't have too many opinions on the rest of the book. My focus and appreciation for it is mainly like on understanding Bertha as a character and how she's lived on in history. Literally same. I, (laughs) the entire rest of the book, I was just thinking about 
her and how much I wanted to know more about her. And I was so glad when I saw in the Audrey notes that someone had written The White Sock SOC, like literally someone had written the book about this. And then when I opened it and saw that you'd given it a 4.25 rating on Storygraph, I was like, cool, well, I'm definitely reading that then because that's a good rating from you. It definitely feels like mandatory follow-up reading. Yes, so I will be reading that at some point. Maybe not straight away, I might give it a gap because I'm not feeling the need to immerse myself in the world any further at the moment. <laughs> like, I need a break. Interestingly, I don't think Rochester's name is ever used in White Star Gas OC. He's very much a background, almost. Like, there are sections from his perspective, I think, but there are only a couple of them. I think it's in part from Bertha's perspective, part from Rochester, mm -hmm. and part from Grace Poole. And I don't think it will feel too much like Jane Eyre mm -hmm. because the writing style, the atmosphere, the setting is completely different. So I wouldn't worry that like, like I remember thinking, oh, I want to read Jane Eyre and then I want to read Wuthering Heights. And after I read Jane Eyre, I was like, I'm definitely not reading Wuthering Heights right now. I need some time. But White Star Gas OC is a totally different vibe. And I do recommend reading it somewhat close to Jane Eyre just because then you have like the, like fresh mm -hmm. ideas of what was going on to like put into context Jean Reese's interpretation mm -hmm. of like the prequel but it's also not necessary you can definitely take time but I wouldn't worry too much about it feeling similar I'm trying to remember what other notes I had just like thoughts going through oh Helen in the early chapters what was the purpose of that character oh yeah we totally didn't talk about that early bits I do not understand the purpose of that character apart from I mean I I know like I know because it was in the Audrey notes that sh that I think Charlotte Bronte was basically wanting to write about like I think they had a younger sister who died young in a boarding school situation similarly and I think that she just wanted to put that in there. I think also Helen is the jumping off point for Jane Eyre's conviction towards like purity and like good moral values I guess. What's the word like Almost like, yeah, like, good Christian values type of thing. I like, guess. She's so um, annoying, though. Piety, I guess is the word. Yeah, piety is the piety, word I'm looking for. Yeah. So, like, purity and piety. Yeah. So, I think it does make sense for, like, setting up her character. Helen, I just found to be kind of, like, entertaining because I feel like any child with really strong views is quite entertaining, <laughs> even if I don't, like, agree with those views. So, I don't know. I can see how her character might be slightly boring, yeah. but I also just found her kind of funny. I think maybe because because I've read the Little Women novels relatively recently, I was like, oh no, more of this. <laughs> right, a lot of, right. Not a lot, but like there are sections of Little Women that do the piety preaching and my brain right. just kind of turns off <laughs> during those things. Honestly, I loved Jane in the early years. I thought she was Me so too. funny. She's so and feisty. She's so feisty. And I'm like, darn, if she only never met Helen, she yeah. might have like continued to have that sort of Austin-ish spite, know. you know, that she carries and around with literally her. The, the times, the only times I liked Jane actively were then and the few times when she's genuinely really, really cheeky with Mr. Rochester. Like there's a couple of times when, especially like when she's just a bit reunited with him and she's teasing him about Sinjin, like, like giving him as little information as possible so that he gets as jealous as possible. And it's all done you know she she keeps reassuring herself that she's doing it just because him being mad is better than him being depressed but really you can tell that she's getting a kick out of his jealousy like those two times when right. she's actually showing a real personality rather than just trying to be a good person 
person, quote unquote. Like, it's <laughs> funny because it's so ironic to me that Charlotte Bronte talks about Jane Austen having no passion and, and all this kind of stuff when Jane Eyre is one of the most boring characters I've ever... Oh yeah, Jane's totally bland. Especially as a first person point of view character. She's just like so deeply beige. Yes! You know? She's the most... She, beige, that's it. And that's what yes. Rochester loves about her and that's why I'm yes. like, you know what, exactly. you too work out so well, good for you, and finding someone who could love you. Mm-hmm. That's a feat, mm-hmm. honestly. So go off and do your thing, and I'm going to read my book about Bertha because she's so much cooler. That was the other thing. I kept just being so confused by what Jane was finding attractive about his manner of speaking because she kept going on and on about the fact that he wasn't physically attractive. Right. And the fact that she was attracted to his communication style or whatever. But his communication style was just bulldozing. <laughs> and I'm just like, what's... I don't understand. He's talking at you and you're never quite sure what mood he's going to be in on any particular day. Are you okay? Like, why is this someone that you're attracted right. to? Right, what about that is fun? <laughs> well, okay. You know what, to be honest, I will give her the fact that I understand that sometimes the challenge is fun, that sometimes someone who... Really? Yeah, you know? Someone maybe a little mysterious, like, you know, who, like, holds it over your head a little bit. It can be fun. I can understand that. But... (laughs) <laughs> no, Nina, no. But also, like, to a degree that, like, is clearly a joke, clearly self-aware. Oh, yeah, no, it's the self-awareness mean? that you need. He has nothing. None of no it. No self-awareness yeah. there. He's just manipulative exactly. and a bit of a child, honestly. And for a man who's so much older, she shouldn't have to... <laughs> editor's note i get distracted here and forget to finish my point but there's another example of mr rochester's manipulation tactics that i forget to mention in which he dresses up as a fortune teller to trick jane and all the other young ladies at a gathering into finding out their true feelings and manipulating their feelings and even of the time what what on earth is that kind of behavior that is insane it's that's insane and what's even more insane is that jane's response is not to be wary of him it's to find it funny and endearing i i just ugh. and also the fact that she keeps referring to him as the master and my master yeah ugh, even when she's yeah, no longer under employment like she doesn't think of him as mr rochester only she also thinks of him as like she very rarely thinks of him as dear edward like that comes up occasionally most of the time right. it's either mr rochester or even more commonly my master like <laughs> even when she's thinking of him when she's not in their house anymore right my master ugh yeah no not not it, a good look uh, why ultimately this book just ends up being entertaining in a funny yes, way? it was entertaining, but not in the ways that I think it was meant to be. Right, no, not at all in the ways it was meant to be. And also only if you go into it with the expectation that it's funky and not, yeah. like, meant to be taken seriously, really. Well, yeah. Or not that it's not meant to be, but you know what I mean. I went in with no expectations, and I'm glad, because if I had gone in expecting this to be... Well, actually, the only expectation I had was, like, people kept saying over and over again that if you like Pride and Prejudice, you'll like this book. And that's why in the first few chapters, I kept texting you every few chapters, like, what is going on? This book is wild! (laughs) Because people kept comparing them, and I know if I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. No! (laughs) They're not! They're nothing! Nothing alike. They're literally nothing alike. 
Overall, I enjoyed this. It was intriguing. It was mysterious. Mysterious is the word. Yes. And it was wild. I had a good time reading it. I'm not going to say I didn't. I'm not going to say <laughs> I disliked it overall. It's a journey. It's a journey. Am I going to reread it? Probably not. <laughs> yeah. It would have to be Fair. probably at least like 10 years before I even touch it again. Maybe never. We'll see. I think never's okay. I think that's very much okay. I think I only reread it because of the very specific circumstances that I'm in, yes. that I was in, and I don't see myself ever reading it again. Yeah. I don't feel like I will probably need to, to be completely honest. I think it really honest. seared itself into my brain in a way yeah. that doesn't yeah. require second reading. Like, even if I took a class that required this as reading, I think I would know enough. I feel like you specifically, because you, like, made all those notes, <laughs> I feel like you have got this down. Yeah. Like, you made all those notes how many years ago now, and you still remember this book almost as well as I do, and I've just read it yesterday. Yeah, I think that was, like, 2021, and I could still write an essay on it. Yeah, two years ago, and your memory of it is just as good, if not better. Like, the race, all the race stuff, you remember even better than I do, and I just finished this yesterday. (laughs) To be fair, you were reading with your eyes, and I was reading with my ears, so there would have been a few terms that just kind of floated past me. Right, I was also doing the ears and eyes thing Ah. with the audiobook and the physical book, so that helps. And, you know, also I was listening closely, underlining things. So I was reading with a very academic eye. Yeah. Yeah, thoroughly trying to understand Mm. everything behind the book and I just understood too much more than I wanted Mm. to understand I have to say it was slightly more like after the amazing Audrey guide notes that came with Mrs. Dalloway I was slightly underwhelmed by the ones that came with this book especially considering how thoroughly studied this book is Mm -hmm. but maybe that's just because like I don't know I feel like there's so many different conspiracy theory no one's read it (laughs) I feel like there's so many ways you can view this book. I feel like the way you and I are viewing it is potentially just not the way that a lot of people do, which is fine. I don't understand that. I disagree. Probably most people are coming at it from a view of what the author is intending. Right. And that is not what we're doing right now. No, yeah, obviously. (laughs) Because what the author is intending is depressing to us and we don't want to think about it. Yeah, I don't know. Even if you do, though, like Jane and Rochester, I mean, Rochester's at least kind of fun and spunky. You know, like he's an unlikable. He, he's unlikable, but unlikable people are often interesting, yeah. you know? I mean, he, yeah, and you so can't I say he's boring. That's true. He's definitely not boring, but, like, Jane herself is pretty boring. Yeah. So, like, if you're just reading it for the story, I guess the only way you'd be reading it is if you're, like, into the whole Rochester thing, mm. which, like... Nope. Therapy <laughs> is my recommendation. Yeah. If you're reading this for the romance... Hey, hey. Yeah, get out of the relationship you're in. Yeah. Sorry, that's the big judgment, but, like, also not wrong. It's a good gothic mystery. It's a terrible romance, basically. Right, right. Yeah. Totally. Well, I look forward to your thoughts on Wide Sargassum Sea. Yes. To come, eventually. I feel like I had another thought wandering around in there. Oh, also, convenient... That was another one of the convenience plot things. It just popped into my head. Convenient relative death, leaving money. Hmm. Also, yeah, because whole... she had to have money to be good enough for him. Well, uh, which the thing is, she didn't because he right. was going to take her anyway. She just had to have money to not be destitute and to have her cousins right. like her or something. I don't even know. Like that was just convenience plot for the sake of convenience plot. And so that she could get back to him, I guess, without it needing to be another awkward, I don't know. That whole section of the story between her leaving Thornfield and coming back was just convenience plot city. Right. I oh, mean, yeah, that was it. Sorry, I remember the other thought I was going to have. The casual, I mean, there were a lot of, like, random racist 
things popping up all over the place. But then there was also the casual anti-Semitism that came up in the Ooh. middle of a freaking love speech. It was just so jarring. Right. Like, they were just exchanging, like, little, like, flirtations in the middle of one of the proposal speeches or, like, just after he proposed or something. And he makes some comment about, I'll give you half my estate. And she makes some comment about, like... I'm no Jew user or something like that. You don't you don't need to give me anything. I'm like, whoa, hang on. <laughs> Where'd that come from? <laughs> I know, I think I literally have a note on that page where I highlighted that line and wrote, I tap out. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> like in the middle of them just flirting and like telling each other how much they love each other and what they're gonna do when they're married and whatnot, she just like drops a Jew user. <laughs> Excuse me. That's what you sort of mean by like how their relationship is based on their racial purity. Yeah. You know, I mean, not just that line, but like many lines yeah. about how like they're meant to be for each other yeah. and how like she's good enough for him and stuff because she's pure and white and has the same, I guess, not political beliefs, but like cultural beliefs. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like she, she, same worldview, maybe. And it's interesting. Did you say that Charlotte Bronte was anti what was going on? She in... was an abolitionist. Okay. Because... I'm pretty sure she was an abolitionist. I remember hearing that in the podcast. Right. Uh, on air with Vanessa Sultan. Okay. Was but she... I think she was an abolitionist in the way that it was more to, like, be part of intelligent society. Right. There was a line in this book that I skimmed a few minutes ago that I saw where she was saying something like, to prostitute myself would be like to buy a slave. So, like, in a twisted way, she means to say she's against the buying of yes. people. But yeah. that doesn't mean she also believes in their personhood. Yeah. Well, what I was about to say was, do you know how she felt about, like, colonization later in her life? Because the whole book ends, like, she decides to end it weirdly on where Sinjin ends up. She decides to end the book on Sinjin's brave missionary work in India and how he died in pursuit of the cause. One assumes of an illness he caught there. I don't know. It's very vague. Right. But, like... That's where she ends the book, is on this long speech. Or not that long, but longer than any of the other character summaries were. And she ends it on that. My interpretation is that while she doesn't necessarily believe in, like, slavery and abusing other cultures, she does believe in European supremacy. Right, yeah. And there definitely seems to be a huge emphasis on assimilation and, like, the people who assimilated well were accepted just in general and then the people who didn't assimilate well were seen as more, like, eccentric or Wild. Know, generally less... Like, even Mr. Rochester himself is often described as being uglier because he's of darker feature, you know? And that's brought up a lot, is that he's of darker feature. And that's described as ugly because he's got slightly, like, maybe Italianate features or something like that. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally agree. All right, well, I think that covers most of our thoughts. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We have been Books Without Borders. As always, you can contact us at bookswithoutborderspod at gmail.com. That's bookswithoutborders, P-O-D, at gmail.com. And as always, in our show notes, we have a list of every book we mentioned in this episode and some other resources as well. We will catch you next time. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.